Hey everyone, before I start the show, I just wanted to um, give a couple of notes up front. Um, For those of you who know me personally, um, you're going to hear this episode and you're going to be a little freaked out probably by the subject matter considering what I've been dealing with lately in my life. Um, This episode was recorded about a month ago, I want to say, maybe a little bit longer, um, and it was written a very long time ago. Um, and so it's just another strange coincidence after tragedy, um, that always seems to poke its head up. The other note is that there's a couple of moments during the credits where you're going to hear my current really sick, horrible sounding voice cut in, um, amidst the normal sounding voice that I recorded about a month ago. I apologize for that. I just really wanted to reflect the recent change with the Patreon support and how we reached the show's goal. So I apologize for that. Um, okay, let's uh, let's start the show. Over here, gentlemen. I, I have a table reserved for us. Afternoon time. Start. Afternoon, gentlemen. Please not introduce yourselves. Because I recognize you again. These are dangerous times. Make a lot out when I tell the truth. I'm Joe Stracci, and I better start writing this down. Episode 6, From Not Home to Home. 1. Let me be clear about something from the start. There will not be much in the way of closure by the end of this. There will be an explanation of my fear of losing my child, an explanation of my fear of losing my wife, and an anecdote that combines the two. There will not, by the end, be any grand pronouncements, or newfound freedom, or removal of the weight of irrational fears, lifted by way of rational consideration. Not too long ago, I wanted to write about loss, and then I realized that I had none. But once I had a child two years ago, almost from the start, I felt forced to reckon with loss in a new way. Every story I hear, TV show that I watch, movie that I see, any cultural object involving the sad stories of children, they all represent an amount of pain that is foreign to me, and that I know, deep down, I need to recognize exists. Now that I have a child, I can't help but consider all of the ways that she can die. I've lost track of the amount of times that I've asked myself, or asked my wife Danielle, after telling or hearing the campfire tales for parents of suffocation, cancer, and blind chance. How do you come back from that? Our answer is always the same. I don't know. Along those lines, I also cannot help but think about all of the ways my partner can die. Every I'll just run to the store real quick becomes a potential confrontation with the inevitable. Texting while driving home from work in the rain? Why not just wait? Actually, why not just wait for it to stop? Worked all night? Sleep at the hospital before driving home. Sometimes, after I put Luna to sleep, I sit and huddle under the blanket and try to remember the last thing that my wife and I said to each other, a piece of information that will be vital to surviving in a best friendless world. 
I know the exact sound, the muffled thud of our storm door being closed, and the exact amount of time before the squeak of the interior door as it opens, and then the sound of the corner of the door rubbing up against the tile in the hallway that is just a hair too high. All of these sounds indicate that Danielle made it home again. At two years old, Luna already knows the sounds just the same as I do. She has for a while, but her excitement is not the same as my relief. When I sat down to write about loss, I realized I do not want to be forced by grief to learn how to process it. But can you prepare yourself? A game that I've played with myself recently and told no one, not even my wife, is this. Would you rather walk into a room and discover something fatally wrong with your child and never truly know what happened, or would you prefer to witness the incident and know but always be able to replay it? Why I do this to myself, I'm not sure. Very few of the hundred or so day-to-day acts that involve Luna receive philosophical scrutiny. Danielle and I, we've got a rough outline of things we want to do and do not want to do. And the minute-to-minute decisions are made within that framework to the best of our ability. We aren't always successful. I make choices that I don't always understand. I'm presented with mental and physical outcomes that I don't always understand. For example, even after an entire day spent with my daughter, a day that typically includes changing table outbursts, during which she intentionally tries to kick her mirror down, lunches that are punctuated by one-minute timeouts because when presented with a cup she doesn't want, she swats it out of my hand. Dinners where she out of nowhere refuses to eat something she loved the day before. By the time she's been asleep for 30 minutes or so, I'm watching the videos on my phone that I took of her that day, swiping through her pictures and fighting the urge to wake her up, hold her, play with her, read to her. Most days, there isn't enough time to consider the things we do. That's why routine makes caring for a child just a bit easier. I don't think that the mental game of chicken that I play with myself, to see or not to see, is actually to find an answer to my question. It's to get me more comfortable with existing in a world where, however unlikely, the outcome of either scenario is a possibility. As my daughter morphs from fleshy baby into sentient child, My impact on her, as well as my wife's impact on her, has become harder to ignore. I am sad when my wife leaves for work because I am sure that Luna knows that she is leaving. She has mastered the wave goodbye. She cries, says mama, asks for her throughout the day. But I am not sure that Luna knows that she will come back. And not only do I not know how to make her understand this fact, I'm increasingly conflicted on if I should. 
I've always spoken to Luna as if she understands what I'm saying. Since before she could even visibly understand my words, I've tried to only tell her the truth. But in two years, I've learned that, as a parent, once you begin to tell the truth, you begin to break promises. Three. My wife is a midwife. Her on-call day is Friday. 24 hours, 8 a.m. to 8 a.m. Every three weeks, she's also on call for the entire weekend. And the combination of the two responsibilities can be especially taxing. Slow weekends feel like mini vacations. But hectic weekends leave me emotionally taxed wrung out, unable to recall the last time I drove off of our property. And then I remember that the new week is beginning, and stay-at-home dad that I am, I have to do it all over again. Luna has no understanding of any of this. For her, it's a binary operation. Her mother is either there or not. We tell her about mama leaving to help the babies. And I'm sure that one day soon, she'll have a better grasp of what her mother does when she's gone. But for now, it's a concept reduced down to its most basic components. On a recent Friday, as usual, Danielle was on call. Luna waved goodbye to her at 7am that morning. Work intervened. The babies needed help and Danielle was not home for dinner, and then not in time to put Luna to bed. That morning, shaky, maybe I'll see you later, from Mama, would not come true. Not the first time, and likely not the last. I put Luna in her crib, already zippered into her sleep sack, already sung to, already read to. I pushed the hair out of her eyes, and told her that I loved her with as much meaning as I could muster. And then I told her that Mama would be home in the morning. And that was my mistake. But me and my daddy, we stay right here. We's who the earth is for. Four. I've got a strange family lineage when it comes to dealing with death. I wasn't because of infighting and strained relations. Given the news that an uncle, my father's uncle, technically my great-uncle, although I was close to him as a child, had died. He was in the ground for two weeks before I found out. Because of the same infighting, the same strained relations, I also was told after the fact that my grandmother, my father's mother, a caricature of Bronx Italian-American woman who always had frozen Italian bread and frozen meatballs on hand, had died. I haven't spoken to my father in almost a decade, with no explanation from him as to where he's disappeared to, and so he has effectively become dead to me as well. My wife doesn't believe me totally, even if she doesn't say it to my face when I share this sentiment, but it's true. 
lacking a quantitative biological measure of expiration. I'm left to count the times when I conjure him up alive in my head. It hardly ever happens. Strangely, even through all of this, maybe because of all of this, I've got a knack for dealing with death. I think it comes from practicing what I see as my greatest talent. Observation. Combined with my weird semi-detachment from human-to-human emotions. Ask my wife to tell you how many times she's seen me cry in 15 years. Then ask her to tell you how many times she's seen me get misty during a sports-related moment. And I'm a death life coach. I've got it all. Gallows humor for wakes. The comforting, I'm sorry for your loss, handshake. The stoic, clenched jaw stare. And I don't care what century it is. I always wear all black. I don't know how it happened. Just that it did. I have always felt, and in a way still do, pride about this. But along with Luna's arrival has come shame. I'm a phony. There's a new test. A real test out there that exists that I have not studied for. Would not pass. Would not even recognize the language that the questions are written in. And that is the test that I'm worried about having to take. But me and my daddy, we stay right here. We's who the earth is for. Five. Of course, during that recent Friday night's call, the babies needed help almost consistently throughout the night. Once everything had calmed down, Danielle planned her arrival home from work so that she would be able to get into bed and close our bedroom door before Luna was awake, usually around 6.30. This was intentional. Once Luna knows that her mother is home, she doesn't relent until Danielle's awake and participating. Another binary response. Mother. Present. Mother. Play. On one hand, I know it makes Danielle feel good. She really loves me. But on the other hand, I know it makes Danielle feel bad. As if it's Luna's response to her being out of the home so often. If you're home, since it rarely happens, you're with us now. Luna finally wanted out of her crib by 7am. When she crawled into bed, Danielle had warned me that she absolutely could not be disturbed. She still had 48 hours left to go on call, and if she had to drive back to the hospital right then, she wasn't sure how she could or what she would do once she got there. I closed our bedroom door behind me, walked into Luna's room, greeted her, opened her shades, and when I leaned over her crib to pick her up, I looked at her and felt a numbing sadness. I look into my daughter's eyes every day when her mother leaves for work, and I know that there is a chance, not a likelihood, but certainly a chance, that she will not return. I don't tell Luna this. She wouldn't understand that complex of a thought. But I think, I'm pretty sure, that she understands that even if she doesn't see her mama before she goes to bed, that she'll at least see her in the morning. And the night before, 
I told her that she would, and I realized that I'd broken my promise. And maybe it was my own hang-up, a manifestation of the gnats of guilt and fear that always flit in the face of parents. But I swear I could see disappointment in Luna's eyes when she saw that it was me. That the binary operation still had not flipped from zero to one. From not home to home. But me and my daddy, we stay right here. We's who the earth is for. Six. Two hundred or so words from the end, and I'll remind you of my promise. There will not, by the end, be any grand pronouncements. There's nothing here. I'm left to daydream and rehearse about what I would have done that Saturday morning if the explanation wasn't as simple as Mama will be home by lunchtime. How would I have conveyed the totality of anything further? How could I ever? Back to that answer from the beginning. I don't know. And that's why I've played this game with myself ever since. Confronted with a new possible form of grief, more potent than any I've ever come into contact with, I must admit, I am not prepared. The best answer I've come up with so far is to write and record what you're listening to, as a way to at least verbalize, and by extension, put limits on what was and is still running through my mind anytime I'm home alone with Luna. In the past two years, time and time again, parenting has shown itself to me to be less like building a house and more like a natural disaster. Something you know is out there, something that you can brace for, but something that you can never accurately predict. It seems as if this time will be no different. For more information about I Better Start writing this down, visit ibetterstart.net. If you want to support the show, pledge a dollar or two at patreon.com forward slash I Better Start. As I posted a couple of days ago, The show is now being funded to the tune of $101 per episode, which is the initial goal I set. That's an amazing number and an amazing feeling. Probably, besides the show itself, the thing I am most proud of accomplishing. Thank you all so, so much. I Better Start Writing This Down is sponsored by Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com, forward slash I better start. You can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial and help to support the show all at the same time. How great is that? Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from. One title that I think IBS WTD listeners would enjoy is The Philosophical Baby. What children's minds tell us about truth, love, and the Meaning of Life by Alison Gottman. The Philosophical Baby is my favorite parenting book that I've read so far. To download The Philosophical Baby for free, go to audibletrial.com forward slash I better start 
Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash I better start to help support the show and in return receive a free audiobook and a free 30 day trial. As always, there are two new mementos for this episode. Memento number one is the essay collection Running After Antelope by Scott Carrier. Memento number two is The Night of the Gun. A reporter investigates the darkest story of his life, his own, by David Carr. Both of these books are by authors that have such distinct, introspective voices. Both are imbued with the kind of honesty and self-reflection that I strive for. So read both and help support I Better Start Writing This Down at the same time. Remember to support the show by purchasing the mementos you have to use the Memento URLs, which you can find on ibetterstart.net and in this episode's show notes if your podcast app supports that feature. I Better Start Writing This Down has a vigorous social media presence. Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Facebook, we're everywhere. All you need to remember are username in all of those spaces. I Better Start that's it. Hopefully, you wrote it down. What do we always say about Wall? What is Cray Cray? He's Cray Cray. What about Book? Cray Cray. He's Cray Cray too. What about who's the last cat that we have? Franny. Franny. What about her? Cray Cray. She's Cray Cray too. waiting for a plane to pass we get about maybe 10 planes a day that pass close enough to here so of course one is passing right now if luna was here she'd say a pain a pain okay i think it's gone